Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning. Welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. Today we are celebrating our fifth anniversary. The church actually had its first meeting on April uh, the 11th, which would be next Saturday. But since next Saturday is Resurrection Sunday, we decided to celebrate our anniversary this Sunday. And so afterwards, there's um, cake and some other things back there in the back so that we can have a little birthday party today. So plan on staying around for a few minutes afterwards. Another announcement that... uh, we need to be aware of is this Thursday we'll do something a little different on our Thursday night Bible class. Some of you have seen this before, and I always get requests to do this again, but I'm going to do a Passover or Seder dinner um, demonstration on Thursday night. The Passover going through the Haggadah, which is the Jewish uh, book that describes the Exodus and is the uh, outline of events that are observed in a Jewish home on Passover and to go through all the different elements that are there in a um, in a Seder meal, all of which point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quite interesting to see that. It's also important because it's out of the Passover meal, which was the meal that our Lord was celebrating with his uh, with the disciples the night before he went to the cross, that we have our understanding of the Lord's table. He took the uh, cup and the bread from the Lord, from the uh, Passover meal, and gave them new meaning. So it's important to see that. It's great to uh, observe it and see it, and we'll do that again, uh, as I said, Thursday night. Before we begin, we need to make sure that we are properly prepared to come into God's presence for worship. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, whenever a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ sins, he can never lose his salvation, but that sin does have an impact on his ongoing relationship with God, and it breaks fellowship, and it ends his ongoing walk with the Holy Spirit or his continual abiding in Christ. These are terms that are used for fellowship and for our ongoing dependence upon the Lord in our spiritual growth. So when we sin, that fellowship is broken, that walk ends, and there is a means of recovery based on grace. It is a reminder uh, of the fact that Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross, and so we simply confess, which means to admit or acknowledge to God the sins we've committed, and Scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And at that point, there is a recovery, and we can resume our forward growth. The focal point in the Christian life is not to get in fellowship. It's to stay in fellowship. It's to abide in Christ, to walk by means of the Spirit, to walk in the light. So since we are to worship God by means of the Spirit and by means of truth, we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to uh, worship the Lord uh, this morning. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. You have created us in your image and in your likeness, and you have given us, the human race, a mission from Genesis chapter 1 that we are to rule over the earth. Now, that mission will never be accomplished now because of sin that has entered into the world, but you provided a perfect solution for that sin through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for sin on the cross, and he will be the one as the future king who returns to the earth to establish his kingdom when the fulfillment of those that creation mandate will finally come about. Father, we come together to worship you because you are the creator God and you are the one who has redeemed us and you are the one who has provided that perfect solution for us. And so you are due all of the honor and glory. And Father, we pray that as we worship you this morning that our focus, our attention, our concentration will be upon you, who you are, who Jesus Christ is, what he has done for us and provided for us and that we may learn from your word how to think and how to live, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the traditional church calendar, today is usually observed as Palm Sunday. Significance of Palm Sunday was that this was when Jesus entered into Jerusalem the week before he was crucified. And it was at that time that the masses uh, came out in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and they waved palm branches and laid them down on the entry on the street as he came in riding upon um, an unbroken colt uh, full of a donkey, and with that entry showing humility, not riding upon a horse as a conqueror, that as he came in, uh, the multitudes sang from the Psalms and a praise to him as the son of David. And it was just within a few days that they rejected him as the Messiah, that the leadership in Israel rejected him as the Messiah, and he was uh, crucified. So I'm going to read this morning from the account in Matthew chapter 21, of that entry referred to as the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes upon the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, 
the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's stand together for our next hymn. This is from the front cover of our hymnal, the song, I Am Waiting for the Dawning, a hymn that focuses on the future uh, imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am waiting for the dawning. Please stand. God has determined that during the church age that the support for the ministry of God's Word, both in the local church as well as missions, is done through the free will, grace offerings given by uh, people in the local church. The local church is what has been instituted in the church age for the dissemination of God's Word. Scripture says that we are to make a choice and to think through our giving. It's not supposed to be something that's manipulated by guilt or uh, just because of some sort of manipulative technique, but that we are to think about what we are doing and why we are doing it, which emphasizes the fact that worship is part of our thinking structure. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the way you have provided for us and that you have supplied us with every need, and you have given us everything that we need and will supply us through the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, fathers, we give these gifts as a token of our appreciation for all you have done for us. We recognize that this is not to somehow gain favor from you, but is a reflection of our appreciation for the favor, the grace that we have already been given. We pray that you will utilize these gifts for the furtherance of the teaching of your word, both here and abroad. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction upon our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have Your Word, not only the written Word, but the living Word, that Jesus Christ is alive today, that He is seated at the right hand at your right hand, and he is awaiting the time to come to receive us to himself in the clouds at the rapture. We look forward to that time. We recognize that as we live in 
the world today and in the cosmic system that this is often a struggle, often a challenge, and as we see the turmoil, the uncertainty in the world around us, it simply drives us to greater dependence upon you, faith in you, and you use that adversity that we face on a day-to-day basis to teach us to walk consistently in dependence upon you day by day, moment by moment. Now, Father, as we continue our study of Elijah, may we be challenged by the principles that we discover in your word, that we may make them a part of our lives through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who matures us and teaches us and the one who strengthens us in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, where we have been studying in the life of Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah announced, if you remember, to Ahab, one of the most evil kings in the northern empire of, or the northern kingdom of Israel, that there would be no rain until he uh, allowed it, and that that would last for some years, according to 17.1. Immediately, God removed Elijah from the scene and hid him away at a place called uh, the Brook Kareth, which is located in on the west side of the Jordan. We're not sure exactly where it was located, but I have located it somewhere over in the neighborhood of uh, Jabesh Gilead. It was there that God provided for him as he promised through uh, ravens, unclean birds that brought meat to him, and he could drink from the brook, which would supply his needs for water. And each day he would see that brook dry up as the impact of the drought uh, was felt in the area. So we recognize a principle there that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how obedient we are, no matter how well we do things, no matter how right we live, that when we are living in the midst of a culture or a civilization that is living divorced from God, operating on principles that are in antagonism to God, that when God brings discipline upon that nation, upon that civilization for their rejection of him, then we as believers are going to feel the impact of that. And it is an opportunity for us to be trained by God to trust him even more, to grow spiritually so that we can be an even more effective uh, witness for the truth of the Scriptures and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in such a time today with all of the turmoil and uncertainty going on around the world with the uh, economic crisis that is truly international in scope. This is comparable to the kind of situation that the believers in the northern kingdom of Israel faced, and it didn't impact simply the northern kingdom of Israel, but as we see, it also has an impact on the surrounding areas where when we come to the last part of this chapter today in Zarephath, it's having its impact there. Zarephath was at the furthest extent of uh, the land that God had originally promised to Abraham, but during this time it is part of the kingdom of the Phoenicians and under their control, and it is a Gentile area that is dominated by the worship of the false god uh, Baal, which stands uh, always hidden in the background of these chapters, and I'll touch on that a little more, uh, a little more this morning. So God is training 
Elijah, and we've seen these principles of training as we've gone into the New Testament to see uh, other examples of how God trains believers. We have to be trained to trust him, what we call the faith rest drill. It, it is to constantly uh, depend upon God, a, a, a mental discipline to take the promises and the principles of God's word and to trust them, to rely upon them on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis so that when we face the opposition of the world system, the crises, the catastrophes, the adversities of life, then we go to God's word and we learn to instantly recall these promises in our mind and to claim them that we may live in a way that is dependent upon him. Now, the faith rest drill also operates in conjunction with what I talked about last time, which is uh, grace orientation. And grace orientation involves learning to be dependent upon God in humility and rely upon the resources that he gives us. And that is what Elijah is learning during the events of chapter 17. And so we read about these different tests that God has brought to to Elijah. The first test involved the day-by-day provision of uh, food by the unclean raven. And then when the water in the brook had dried up, and only after it had dried up, did God give him a second command, which we looked at last time, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. So this is the command of the second test, and it is a test to go into an area of opposition. He is going to be outside of the land, and he is going into enemy territory. Now, what we know about Zarephath, and here it is located on the map. It is located between Sidon uh, and Tyre. Actually, I have, uh, I have mislocated it here uh, on the map. It should be north of Tyre, not south of Tyre, as, uh, as I've got it indicated there. It was 14 miles north of Tyre, 8 miles south of Sidon. And it was about a hundred miles from Carrot, which is uh, where uh, Elijah had been hidden out for the past year or so. We don't know exactly how long he was there. And so Elijah had to move through a hundred miles of hostile territory to get there. Now today there is a small Arab village near the site of ancient Zarephath that goes by the name of Seraphand, and which still preserves the name of the former town. Now, that name, Zarephath, means smelting or refining. So maybe there was at some time some sort of uh, smelting or refining process going on there, and certainly is a time when God is going to uh, refine Elijah in his spiritual growth and continue to teach him to trust in God on a day-by-day basis in training and preparing him for what he is going to be used to do coming up in chapter uh, chapter 18, the great confrontation with the false prophets of Baal and the Asherah. Uh, Zarephath is a town that was quite ancient. We know that it actually existed, that the word of God is grounded in history that is accurate and precise. Uh, in ancient Egyptian uh, papyrus, we find uh, mentions of the uh, town as early as the 13th century B.C., some three or 400 years before the time of Elijah. It's also mentioned again in the Neo-Assyrian records of the 7th century when this town was uh, uh, 
captured by Sennacherib in his invasion into this area of the Middle East. Excavations reveal that this was a, a town of some significance during the time of Elijah. It was an ancient port, and it was a commercial center for the export of wine and oil and the purple dye that was extracted from the murex shells. This is the dye that was used to dye the robes of royalty. It was also a manufacturing site for textiles, pottery, and Phoenician glass. So it was a a mid-sized village at the time of Elijah's life. Later on in the 4th century A.D. in the church age, uh, Christian pilgrims visited there so often that they built a tower there to commemorate uh, Elijah's miracle that occurs in this chapter and uh, where the upper room of the widows uh, was. But we don't know how accurate their knowledge was. Uh, Zarephath is also mentioned in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has come to his hometown of Nazareth, and there he has stood to read from the Scriptures. It's a well-known passage. He reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which is a Messianic passage. And the latter part of verse 2 refers to the millennial kingdom, the coming of the Messiah to establish his kingdom. The first verse and the first part of the second verse are related to first advent prophecy. When Jesus stood to read from from the scroll of Isaiah, he read to the midpoint of verse 2 and stopped, showing that he recognized that that part was being fulfilled before them at that particular time and that the rest of what was mentioned in in verse 2 would not be fulfilled until he came at the second coming. Now, he had quite a response because it was clear that he was applying this messianic prophecy to himself, and so the people reacted, and they were saying, well, who's this? This is Jesus of Nazareth. He grew up just right down the, the, the street here. We watched him grow up. Who is he to claim that he is someone special and the uh, Messiah? And so he responds to them in verse 23 saying, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. You know, who are you? Go take care of yourself and quit uh, trying to straighten us out. Um, Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Well, at Capernaum, he had performed various miracles and healings. And so they're saying, well, in their skepticism, they're saying, do the same thing here. And he said to them, his response in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And so he states this as a proverbial sentence, that when you come to your hometown where you're involved with people who have watched you grow up, uh, with the exception of people in this congregation, uh, you usually have no respect because they uh, know you warts and all. And in verse 25, Jesus says to them, But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that there was such a level of 
negative volition, hostility, and rejection of the truth in the northern kingdom of Israel, that the only person that had was exhibiting positive volition to God to respond to his command to take care of Elijah was the widow of Zarephath, that there was no one qualified in the northern kingdom of Israel to whom the Lord could send Elijah for uh, for protection. And so the Lord is taking that and he's applying it to Nazareth and saying, you have the same kind of negative volition now that the northern kingdom exhibited in the time of Elijah. And for that reason, I'm not going to perform any miracles uh, here either. So Zarephath is selected as a place where God is going to send uh, Elijah and the promise is given in verse 9, as we saw last time, Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So God is in control. It doesn't matter how unstable the economy looks. It doesn't matter how uncertain the weather report is that the drought is going to continue. It doesn't matter how empty the pantry is because her pantry has just enough to get them by for one more day. But what matters is what God's resources are and not what man's resources are. And so Elijah, again, is going to have to learn to walk day by day, to depend upon God in terms of the faith rest drill on a day-to-day basis. So we've seen these two key doctrines develop, the faith rest drill and and grace orientation, because to trust God and to rely upon him uh, is like the other side of the coin for grace orientation. We're depending on him to give to us. And so rather than being self-reliant, which is a key characteristic of what I call the uh, sort of the American uh, worldview cosmic system mentality that we need to be self-reliant, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps kind of mentality, which is a, in some contexts, can be a good, uh, a, a good virtue. But when it comes to the spiritual life, it runs counter to what God says. We are to, supposed to be God-dependent and not self-reliant. And so we have to depend upon his Grace. Now, Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 emphasizes this, that his, in his omnipotence, his divine power, he has granted or given to us everything pertaining to life. That word refers to physical life. That's the logistics we need to handle life, food, shelter, clothing, finances, whatever it is that you and I need to fulfill God's mission for our life, he provides for us. If we don't have it, then God says we don't need it in order to do what he wants us to do. So he's given us everything pertaining to the physical life and then uh, godliness. This is the Greek word, eusebeia, which emphasizes our spiritual life. And that this comes through the true knowledge of him. In other words, as our study of God's word, we learn who he is, what he has provided for us, and we learn his excellencies, his attributes, and he has called us by means of his own glory and excellence. And for by these, that is, he summarized all of God's attributes under this term, glory and excellence, by these, by means of his character, that's what backs his promise. 
He has granted to us these precious and magnificent promises. And so in the faith rest drill, we are claiming these promises in order that by them, by those promises, you might become partakers, that is, sharers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean you become a god or like God. It means that we participate in his provision for us so that our character is transformed into the character of Jesus Christ. That's exemplified in the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Romans 8 says that we are, uh, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, and that we are going on into verse 29, that we are being transformed into the image of his Son. That is the character there. That's what it means to be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That is progressive sanctification. That's our spiritual life. That's Romans 12.2. We're exchanging the concepts of worldly thinking for biblical thinking. Now, that's important principle to understand. That summarizes the whole process of our spiritual life. We are to learn to identify the elements in our thinking that come out of the cosmic system around us. Now, there are some elements in our thinking that, that we easily spot from the beginning of our uh, spiritual regeneration, and we know that it's pure relativism. We know some of the garbage that's there, the, I, the rationalizations for sin, uh, the relativism of the culture, the lack of absolutes the sense of right and wrong that God has put into our soul that is confirmed by the Word of God. We know all that. And so there are certain things that we easily spot are the characteristics of the thought system of the world around us. But there are a lot of other things that are much more subtle and much more deeply embedded uh, within our within our thinking, and we've just picked this stuff up from the culture around us, and, and we think a certain way simply because that is part of our upbringing. And what's interesting, I know some of you have been exposed to this uh, sort of analysis where you, uh, where you work, others of you may, may not, but the analysis of the different generations and how different generations uh, respond to different problems and issues in life, whether you're, they, they refer to the veterans, which are those who are the World War II generation, and then the baby boomers, which are those that are born between um, 1946 and 1964, I believe, and then the generation um, Xers, which are born from about 64 up to 78 or 79, and then those born from that time to 2000 are called the millennial generation. And you can read various things on the websites that talk about these different groups. But what's interesting is to see that there's a, through the basic observation, you see that different groups respond to different things in different ways. And one of the uh, illustrations I saw in a recent uh, recent study I read I thought was was rather interesting and it was an example of what had occurred in a local uh, in a local school where some kid had mouthed off to the teacher and called the teacher a bitch the teacher slapped the kid now the what what's the response of a baby boomer or a veteran well that's pretty good. That's what most of you are thinking. You're thinking, 
Well, that's exactly what that kid deserved, and, and that was the appropriate response. But if you're under the age of 40 or 35, maybe the first thing that came to your mind was that teacher ought to be charged with an assault. See, that's the different, that, that is sort of the gut reaction that you get from different generations. And some of this relates to the fact that as we have grown up, whether you were are older in the veteran generation or whether you're younger and you're a generation Y or a millennial generation, you have certain ideas and values that have been uh, that have been embedded in your thinking that come from the culture in which you you grew up. And those ideas and values are often expressed in sort of the gut reaction that you have to certain situations in life that may or may not be biblical at all. And so what you have to do is you have to stop and think about these things because that's it's sometimes when those deeply embedded cultural generational values that we have bought into are not really biblical, that really have an impact on restraining our own spiritual life. And so we have to think about the culture around us and what it has taught and what we have picked up either from our parents or from our peers or from our professors that has seems to have always worked for us, but it really doesn't. So to learn this... In any learning process, what we have to do is juxtapose truth with error because there's a lot of error error that's out there that is not pure black against pure white. Sometimes that error is eggshell white against pure white, and we have to understand the difference and be able to identify it because that is in our own thinking, and so if we're going to exchange the thinking of the world for the thinking of Scripture, then we have to think a little more analytically. And so we have to juxtapose it. That's how you develop critical thinking skills. Now, this is another interesting aspect because among the millennial generation, I have read that that they have a, a sort of, as a characteristic of that generation, a reaction to being critical of people or positions. They want to come to church and just hear somebody teach the truth, but they don't want to hear a pastor talk about what is wrong with some other position or some other person who is teaching something wrong. Now, that reaction, and I've seen that in people, that they react. I've had people say, well, you know, you have too much of an emphasis on on apologetics or this kind of juxtaposition. We just want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear uh, what other people believe. But see, you can't learn how to think if you, can't, if you don't juxtapose truth with error. You can't think critically, and you'll never be able to spot the errors that have crept into your own thinking if you don't learn to identify some of these things. And the Bible is actually filled with different examples of this. So we have to learn how to think, and that is all part of the process of spiritual growth. So when we read in 2 Peter 1.4, we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It's talking about the various lust patterns of the sin nature. 
which shape the thinking of the world system. So the world system provides a justification for the sin nature living, which wants to live independently from God. Also, we see passages like Ephesians 1.3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. God is sufficient for whatever we face, and so we need to rely on him. And last time I pointed out, in terms of grace orientation, we see various components, humility meaning we have to be willing to submit to what God's word says uh, and not go with what our own gut reactions or uh, training might be as it runs in opposition to God's word. We need to learn to authority orientation to submit to uh, his authority. Uh, we need to develop, as a result of that, we do develop a relaxed, relaxed mental attitude in that we realize that God provides for everything so we can relax in the midst of crisis and trust in him And this leads to a mastery of the details of life where we are not ruled by the desires for things, but that we recognize that whether we have them or don't have them, our happiness comes from our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went through the same training process himself, Philippians 2.8, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death so that we orient our thinking to God and submit to him no matter what it might appear to cost us. Well, as we went through that passage last time, we saw that uh, Elijah's com- command to the woman was not to be afraid because just because she was going to use the last of her flour to make bread for him. He said, go and do as I've said, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, God has given a- her a promise that the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. And so she complies, and she does according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. So she's learning in terms of her spiritual life as well. Now, when I began to go into this section with her, I said there's differences of opinion as to whether or not she's a believer. And having looked at the Luke passage, where Jesus says that only in Zarephath was there a woman who was qualified to take care of Elijah, I am inclined to think that she was a believer. Also, though she makes the statement regarding Elijah that that it is the Lord your God, as the Lord your God lives in verse 12, that this shows that she has a recognition that it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that is a living God as opposed to Baal. Now, she may be in a time of distress where she is doubting God, questioning God, bitter toward God because she doesn't have anything. And so she says, as the Lord your God lives, that may reveal that she is not trusting God at all right at that point in her life, that she's out of fellowship but that she is going to learn something about trusting God herself in the midst of this particular uh, particular crisis. So there's going to be another test that comes along. This is the third test in the in the passage, and this is the test of opposition. Uh, Elijah had to go through two tests dealing with provision, and now he's going to go through the test of opposition. And this is something we all have to deal with. We're going to go through times in our life when we are faced with opposition antagonism from family members, from friends, 
from the culture around us to our belief system and our trust in God's word. And false things will be said about us, about what we believe. Our positions will be distorted. But what else can you expect uh, from the world that is in opposition to everything that God is doing? In fact, they're so opposed that they crucified his son on a cross. So this is Elijah's third test to learn how to operate in the midst of hostility and contempt. And that is his environment with this woman. She's bitter towards God. And we have to learn not to react to that, but to maintain a calm, relaxed mental attitude and demeanor when we are dealing with those who oppose us, whether they are friends, family, or people at work or whoever it might be. And and for some of us, it's more difficult than others. When someone opposes us or somebody challenges what we believe, we want to react. Others are a little more relaxed, but we have to learn how to do that. And Elijah has to learn how to do this on this small scale to prepare him for this large-scale opposition he'll face on Mount Carmel when he faces the uh, 850 false prophets of Baal and and the Asherah. And so what we see here is a picture of how the believers to operate in this hostile environment. Now in 1 Kings 17, 17 and 18 we read, Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, Uh, The son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there's no breath left in him. So this is the problem, is that her son dies. Not only, not she doesn't have enough to be mad at God about already, but now the Lord is going to take the life of her son, the only uh, thing she has that uh, makes life worth living. And so she reacts in anger. Resentment to Elijah in verse 18, and she says, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. All you've done is, uh, by being here, you've just reminded me of all of my failures, and now the death of my son, it's all your fault. Just how many of us respond to things that way? We blame God or blame somebody else for things that happen in life. Now, a question that you should be asking yourself as we read through a chapter like 1 Corinthians 17 is why is it, why is this here? Why does God tell us about this episode? What is the significance of it? There are so many different things that happen throughout the Old Testament period historically and in Israel. Why are these things here? Why has God the Holy Spirit chosen to select these episodes And what is the significance uh, for us? Why are they included in the canon? They are not only included in the canon to teach about God's training, as I've emphasized, but there's another element here that is of equal significance, and that has to do with two doctrines, uh, the doctrine of apologetics and the doctrine of polemics. Now, what does that have to do with Elijah? Well, let's first define our terms a little bit. Apologetics refers to that branch of theology that provides a rational defense of the truths of the Scripture. It doesn't have to do with apologizing or saying, well, gee, I'm really sorry about this, but 
It is a rational defense. It comes from a Greek word, apologia, which was a term that described the rational legal argument that a lawyer would bring in a courtroom as he was presenting his case. And so it is, at its very core, something that is thoughtful. It is something that involves uh, intellectual activity, organization. It's rational. It's not irrational. It is not uh, simply throwing a Bible verse at somebody in some sort of drive-by evangelism that uh, is often what people bail out into because they haven't taken the time to learn why they believe what we believe. We need to be able to answer questions like, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? And the more we live in a hostile pagan culture, the more it's important for believers to understand basic apologetics. We need to answer, be able to answer questions like, how do we know that someone's claim to Scripture or to be a prophet is true or not. I mean, how do you know that that's the Bible? How do you know that should be in the Bible? What about all these other other books that uh, are mentioned by people like um, Dan Brown in the uh, Da Vinci Code and other people who claim that there were other books that should have been included in the New Testament that also give us information about Jesus? How do you know it's those 27 books and not others? A basic claim to how do you know this is true? You say you believe this. It sounds good to me, but but why should I believe this? Why are you saying that? Uh, how do we know that the Bible's claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is true or not? Uh, Resurrection Day is next Sunday. Why do you believe? What's the basis for your belief in the resurrection of Jesus? Now, it's good to say, well, that's what the Scriptures say, but it's not good if you're just going to use that as, as just a, something you throw at somebody without explanation. And what we see in the scriptures is that the apostles and others give an explanation of why they believe what they believe. So apologetics itself includes three things. First of all, it includes something about understanding the correct way to present the arguments for the veracity of scripture. See, if you go to law school, you have to learn how to properly present your case. There are right ways and wrong ways to present a case. You have to learn think principles of logic. You have to learn not only what the law says, but you have to learn different uh, things about how people try to get around the law. So you have to understand that there's right ways and wrong ways to present information, and it may depend on the context and the people you're presenting it to. You may be witnessing to a Muslim, or you may be witnessing to a scientific atheist, or you may be witnessing to a Hindu. And you don't present the gospel in quite the same way. Paul didn't. When he's talking to a Jewish audience, he presented the gospel differently than when he was talking to a Greek audience because they had a different background understanding of who God was. Second thing, we have to understand the correct use of evidence within the Bible for the truthfulness of Scripture. Evidence doesn't, isn't the final court of appeal for the truthfulness of Scripture. Historical evidence, logical evidence, this has to do with the nature of how we present evidence. 
Scripture presents the evidence as a confirmation of truth, not as the final arbiter of truth. And so we have to understand distinctions there. And then third, we can say that apologetics is is at its most simple form, being able to explain to people why you believe what you believe. You say Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he'll give us eternal life. Well, why do you believe that? And we need to be able to answer that question. And a lot of people just don't want to take the time, the effort, the energy to to learn to think through that and to be able to give an answer for the hope that's in them. And that's what runs counter to 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter said, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. That's the word, apologio. The verb there was apologeo. Uh, uh, means to give a ready defense, an answer, a thought-through answer. Now, it doesn't have to be complex. You don't have to be a C.S. Lewis or a Josh McDowell. You don't have to be able to go out and marshal all kinds of data. You don't have to be able to know every uh, twist and turn in the arguments for uh, creation, but you should know where to go. Sometimes it's not easy to just communicate something to somebody in a casual conversation, and if you have the right tools or know the right books or resources you can recommend, that's very helpful as well. But we should be ready to make a defense or to give an answer, a thought-through, rational answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We're not going to beat them over the head with the Bible because they're some stupid idiot, but we're going to have humility, grace orientation in the way in which we present the gospel. Now, this word apologia or apologeo, either the verb or the noun, used several times in the uh, New Testament. In Acts chapter 22, Paul has been... Uh, He's gone to Jerusalem. He's going to fulfill a vow. When he goes to the temple, uh, the forces there that are hostile to Christianity begin to spread a rumor that he is taking Gentiles into the temple. And so there's a a riot. The Roman police, the centurion, comes out to protect him and arrest him. And as they're they're beginning to lead him off, he says, uh, stop, wait a minute, let me address the crowd. And he addresses the crowd Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you see a great explanation of the gospel. And when he gets down to a certain point, then the crowd reacts to him in hostility. But this is his apologia. So it gives us an idea of what that entails. It involves his testimony as well. 1 Corinthians 9, 3, he uses the word again. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. There's nothing wrong with stating your case for why you say what you say, why you believe what you believe. And there are other uh, passages as well. Philippians 1, 7, he says, For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. There he uses the word again. Um, Philippians 1.16, he says, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So this is what the believer is supposed to be engaged in. God never expects, this is a principle you should note, God never expects people to believe the gospel in an intellectual vacuum. That's mysticism. Just believe because I say so. God always presents 
who he is and his word in a way that does not insult the intelligence of the believer. So he expects people to believe within an intellectual framework, and belief is based on knowledge that's rational, logical, and is also vindicated by God through historical objective events. This is the role of signs and wonders and miracles and the resurrection. It's confirmatory. It establishes credentials. It is not the ultimate uh, point of proof. And they are used this way many times in Scripture. For example, in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 3, To these he also presented himself, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ after the resurrection, uh, alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs. And the word that Luke uses there is the Greek word uh, tekmerion, which was used by Aristotle to refer to a compelling or irrefutable sign or piece of evidence. So the Lord gives these compelling proofs of his resurrection. He is not against evidence, but evidence has to be used in the right way. Uh, the point that we see here is that uh, belief in Christ is not the vacating of the mind in some sort of mystical leap of faith, but that we look at the evidence and there is solid objective evidence in history of who God is and what he has done and what the alternatives are. So this involves, uh, this involves apologetics. Now, the other thing that I mentioned, it has to do with polemics. Polemics. Now, this is where you may get some reaction from people. Oh, you're just being too polemical. You're always talking about what the pagans believe, or you're always down on liberal uh, politicians, or you're down on liberal theology, and you're talking about what is being taught today by these other people. I don't care about that. I just want to know what the Bible says. Well, the Bible is filled with polemics. Let's understand what the word means. According to Webster's 11th Collegiate Dictionary, polemics are an aggressive, I love that word, it's an aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. So if you're a millennialist, millennial generation, a generation wire, your knee-jerk gut reaction is, oh, well, that, that just, that, there's something just inherently wrong with that kind of approach. God wouldn't do that. Well, let me tell you in a minute, God does it all through the Scriptures. You're just not aware enough of the culture at the time to understand how polemical God really is. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary says, polemics is the art or practice of dispute or argument as in attacking or defending a doctrine or belief. God is often on the offense against false belief systems. Then the Pocket Dictionary Theological Terms defines polemics as, a polemic can also be the aggressive refutation of another position or principle. In theology, polemics often refers to the attempt to show the superiority of Christian teaching over its rivals by means of a systematic, ordered delineation of the Christian belief system. See, that overlaps with the whole idea of apologetics. Um, 
a systematic theology that shows the internal consistency of Christian doctrines as well as its congruence with human knowledge as a whole. And where he misses out, he says, in the polemics is showing the inconsistency of non-Christian doctrine, that you can't live your life based on the falsehoods of the system in which that you believe. That comes close to what is termed uh, presuppositional apologetics. And we see this all through the scriptures. Let me give you some examples. Genesis 1, if you knew, know anything about the gods and goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon, remember Moses is writing Genesis to the uh, generation that's just come out of Egypt. If you know anything about the Egyptian pantheon and their gods and goddesses, or you know anything about the Babylonian gods and goddesses and their creation myths, and you can even apply this to modern Darwinism because there's not a lot of difference when you get down to it, you realize that Genesis 1, almost every sentence in Genesis 1 is a polemic against the false gods of Egypt and Babylon. The only reason you don't catch that is because you're not that familiar with uh, what they believe. But the original readers, the Israelites who came out of Egypt, were. And as they read that, it was like every sentence was a slap in the face to one of these false belief systems. The ten plagues in Egypt are a polemic against the gods of Egypt. Each one of those plagues counters some false claim by one or more of the Egyptian false gods. First uh, Samuel 8 is a polemic against the pagan governmental systems of the world and the desire to locate all authority in a strong government. When you read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many of the minor prophets, uh, Amos and Obadiah, you see numerous polemics against the idolatry of the Israelites and the false religious systems of their neighbors. You get into the New Testament, and Jesus constantly engages in polemics against the self-righteous practices and beliefs of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is why they are so embittered against him and want to crucify him. In Galatians, Paul utilizes numerous polemics against the false teaching of the Judaizers, as he does in Colossians, which is targeting the early Gnostics and the false teachers that were influencing the believers in Colossae. Again and again and again, the scriptures have an aggressive refutation of the false systems of thought and present the positive view of what God can do. And that's what we see in 1 Kings 17. All of these uh, different episodes that we find here are saying something about what God can do and provide over against the God that they're trusting in, which is the God Baal. So let's stop a minute and just ask the question, what's the role of these miracles? They are not to prove as the final court of approval, uh, proof the truth of Scripture. They are confirmatory. For example, 2 Corinthians 12.12, Paul says, When we were among you, I performed the signs of an apostle. They confirmed, they provided credentials for him, but they weren't the only credentials. See, the Bible says for anything to be confirmed, there have to be two witnesses. And the two witnesses have to do with the content of the message and the confirmatory sign. Now, a lot of people forget the content aspect. And they just say, well, look at that miracle. Look at what that, that uh, uh, Benny Hinn did. Look at all of those healings uh, that, uh, that are there, or Amy Simple McPherson, or 
uh, Catherine Kuhlman, and they say, those were real miracles. I, I had one lady in a Bible study one time, and she said, well, I was healed of cancer by Catherine Kuhlman. I said, great, but let's look at her message. I'm not going to dispute you over whether or not you were healed. That's not the issue. The issue is what's the message. See, God always validates externally through objectifiable evidence what he teaches in his word. That's what separates Christianity from mysticism. In Deuteronomy 13, we have one of the tests of a true prophet. The scripture says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true. See, the, the, God isn't saying, and it, you know, it's some counterfeit miracle. He says, let's accept for the sake of argument that it's a real legitimate healing. It's a real prophecy. They, they, they actually managed to get it right and predict something that would happen in the future, and it comes true. And then they say, okay, now that they've given you the miracle, now they're going to teach something. And then they say, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. See, this is the content of their message. The content contradicts what God commanded in his word. So it's not enough that you have the one witness or confirmatory evidence of a healing or a miracle of some sort. That may actually be there. But if the message contradicts the accepted revelation of God's word, then Reject whatever this false prophet is saying. Deuteronomy 13.3, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So that God allows these things to happen for the purpose of testing your obedience. Now, what's happened in the midst of the crisis in the northern kingdom is rather than trusting in God to provide for them, they are trusting in Baal. And so there's going to be this uh, evidence that is going to be presented through Elijah that Baal can't do what only God can do. And Baal was the weather god of the Canaanite pantheon, and he controlled fertility. It's an agricultural environment. He controlled fertility through rain, and thus he's the god of thunder, the god of lightning, the god of rain and productivity, prosperity, uh, and the god who provides life. He's also part of another aspect of the myth of Baal was that he was part of a dying, rising god pattern brings in the idea of resurrection, that at the height of the summer drought, he was slain by Mote, the god of death, and then his mother, Anat, would search for him and eventually find him and restore him to life. And so there's this resurrection idea there. And what, how is this going to be countered? 1 Kings 17, 19, the son dies, and Elijah says, give me your son, he took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper room where he was living, laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself out upon the child three times, called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard his voice. 
and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Revived is a bad translation. It indicates that maybe he really wasn't dead. That's why I really don't like resuscitation. You give artificial resuscitation to somebody who's drowned out in the, out in the gulf or in the local swimming pool, and they come back to life. That's not resurrection. That's not bringing somebody who was truly dead back to life miraculously. Uh, literally in the Hebrew it says, and he lived. Because he was dead. He was past artificial resuscitation. Uh, verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house, gave him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son is alive. This is a polemic against Baal. The worship of Baal was that Baal was the one who gave life. Baal never gave life. The God of Israel gives life. This is a polemic to show that Anyone who trusted in the false system of the Canaanite gods and goddesses couldn't live that way because they couldn't, those gods and goddesses couldn't provide anything. But the God of the Bible does. He is the only God that solves the problem of death, physical death, and the ultimate problem of spiritual death through Jesus Christ. And so the woman is confirmed, notice, in her belief. Not that not the statement here isn't soteriological, having to do with her salvation. She says to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. See, it confirmed his credentials. Just as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, his credentials were affirmed by the miracles. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So there's the correlation between the confirmatory sign and the message of the word of God. Now, this is just the first resurrection that we have in the scriptures. There are numerous other resurrections that occur down through the Old Testament and into the New Testament leading up to the ultimate resurrection which is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll come back next Sunday because it is Resurrection Day, and we'll begin by looking at those and then the significance of the Lord's resurrection. And we see this crystallized for us in two passages, two statements of Jesus, John 11:25 and 26. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me even if he die, will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the focal point. Jesus demonstrates in his resurrection, God demonstrates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that death is truly conquered. It is confirmatory, and it demonstrates and validates all that Jesus taught as well. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14:19, After a little while the world will no longer see me, a reference to his death, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. That is the hope that we have as Christians, our future hope. It's a future confidence. And the scripture says we are always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. But to have that hope in you, you have to believe in Jesus Christ in his uh, death that he died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Let's bow our heads together and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things in your word this morning, to be challenged by them, to recognize how important it is for us to uh, replace 
all kinds of uh, human viewpoint thinking in our own soul with the eternal truths of your word to learn to think as you would have us to think. And that that starts with what we believe about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. It is at the cross that he paid the penalty for our sins. He died as our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins and Because of that, we can have eternal life. We trust in him by believing in him, faith alone, we can have eternal life. Uh, His mission, his work was validated, confirmed by the resurrection as God demonstrated that in Christ's work on the cross, death is vanquished. And we have victory now in the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to believe that Jesus died for you. The instant you believe this, God knows what you're trusting in, and at that instant you have eternal life. Father, we pray that we'll be challenged by the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for our closing hymn. Our closing hymn is number 234, Crown Him with many crowns, number 234. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we celebrate the five years of this church uh, in existence, we thank you for your wonderful grace blessings that you provided. We recognize that what we have has all been from you, from the faithful pastor to teach us your word, to a building, to the hearers of the word and those who teach our children and all of the talents that you brought together for this group that we may focus on the ultimate uh, most important part and that is the teaching and intake of your word. Father, we pray for those who were unable to be with us today due to physical problems that you will give them strength and comfort and wisdom to their doctors that they will rejoin us very soon and that they will continue to be a testimony to your word. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.